When I was in high school, I used to work as a caddy on a golf course. Where else would a caddy work? One day, I was carrying one of the golfer's bag of clubs, walking down the sunny fairway, my shoulders aching under the heavy load. I walked beside the golfer, my boss for the next few hours. He took a break from chatting with his friends to ask me a bit about myself. It was nice of him. Many golfers often just ignored me the entire round. He asked me my name. I don't like to lie, so I said it was Steve, Steve Weinberg. My golfer slash momentary boss chuckled to himself. So, you're also a member of the tribe, he answered. <laughs> it seems as though my last name, Weinberg, was so patently Jewish that he was able to conclude my entire heritage based on this meager fact alone. So you're also a member of the tribe. This was the first time I'd heard this expression, but I figured out pretty quickly what it meant. He was trying to point out in a humorous, light-hearted way that he was also Jewish and that, therefore, we were both Jewish. The Hebrews were once made up of 12 tribes. The tribe of Judah, from which the vast majority of today's Jews descend, was one of these 12 tribes. He was being humorous. The word tribe connotes an ancient division of people who see each other as blood brothers, who hunt bison with spears and daggers, who go through life with a ride-till-we-die attitude. When we hear the word tribe, we think of Genghis Khan on horseback or sitting bull stretching a bow and arrow to its limits. We don't think of a teenager carrying a dentist's golf bag. The golfer's point in making this ironic comment was to illustrate the pathetic contrast between the paunchy, secularized Jewry of today and the tight-knit, hardened tribe of Judah from more than two millennia ago. The word tribe just doesn't fit the Jews anymore, he wished to indicate. This word is just a relic of a lost era, and we are the monstrous, displaced, confused, unwanted children from this fallen age. But strangely, he did not utter these words, so you're also a member of the tribe, with lament or bitterness or sorrow. He said them glibly and nonchalantly, as though it were more important to him to get a laugh than to curse the untimely decay of his nation. If there were ever a time to be serious, this was it. But no, not to him. For whatever reason, he didn't see it that way. In any case, I laughed at his joke. I was too young to know any better, and deference and obsequiousness almost always meant a bigger tip. You are listening to The Shrift, Life to 25, Jeremiah 7.
let's stay on this topic for a little while longer. I can't listen to Adam Sandler's song, the Hanukkah song, without cringing. Yet, the point I wish to relay here is so important that I guess I'll just have to suck it up and cringe. For my dear listeners outside of America, you've probably never heard of the Hanukkah song. But for my American fans, there is almost no question that you have heard of this song. In the Hanukkah song, comedian and actor Adam Sandler states at the outset that the purpose of the song is to give, quote, nice little Jewish kids, unquote, a Hanukkah song because there are so many Christmas songs already out there. Right away, Sandler adopts a defensive posture, casting the Jews as a weak minority in a sea of Christian muscle. He then lists a bunch of celebrities, many of whom are now long forgotten, whom you might not have known are Jewish. At one point he sings, quote, Paul Newman's half Jewish, Goldie Hawn half too. Put them together, what a fine looking Jew, unquote. Other sections of the song are devoted to simply mentioning words which either rhyme with Hanukkah, such as yarmulke or harmonica, or to just naming things we associate with Hanukkah, like the dreidel or the eight nights of presents. The song was released in 1995, so it is rather old. Yet, there have been three sequels to the original song, all the way up to 2014. So it seems to still play a pretty significant role in the popular consciousness. There are two important takeaway points from this song which are interrelated. The first point is that the entire tenor of the song, like the golfer's little joke, is that there is something funny and embarrassing about being Jewish. The second point is that Sandler's song demonstrates how the meaning of Hanukkah has been usurped and trampled upon by contemporary Jewish-American forces. There is nothing in this song which at all relates to the actual Maccabean revolt against the Hasmoneans in the 2nd century BCE. Somehow, Jewish delis and Jews in Hollywood and comparisons with Christmas have come to be more associated with Hanukkah than the heroic rebellion of Judah Maccabee against Antiochus IV of Epiphanes and all the blood which was spilt in the holy city of Jerusalem to push back against the tide of paganism and assimilation threatening to swallow up Israel. But we can hardly blame Sandler for his debased understanding of what Hanukkah is. After all, I think we can be sure that he never actually sat down to read the apocryphal book of Maccabees. There is nothing new about Jews losing touch with the core, the essence, the sources of their heritage. As a young man of 28, Franz Kafka was dismayed at the hypocrisy and ignorance he saw in his fellow Prague Jews. On the evening of September 30, 1911, Kafka went to synagogue. It was Kol Nidre of Yom Kippur, widely considered the most holy and most sacred synagogue service on the entire Jewish calendar. The young Kafka stood in the Old New Synagogue, Prague's most famous synagogue dating back to the year 1270. Nevertheless, Kafka did not like what he saw. The next day, he wrote in his diary a description of what he had experienced the previous evening at Shul. Quote, Yesterday at the Old New Synagogue, Kol Nidre, hushed up murmuring about the stock market. In the hallway, there was a donation box with a sign which read, Small gifts given in silence will soothe your defiance. 
Three pious Jews, obviously from the East, in long robes, bent over their prayer books, their talit pulled over their heads, making themselves as small as possible. Two of them are crying. Are they only moved by the holiday? One of them probably just has sore eyes. Here, Kafka scoffs at the secularized Jews who have come to synagogue, not to pray, but to talk about finance. But he equally mocks the pious Jews who are attempting to showcase how from they are. In fact, their tears are not about the holiday at all, but rather about personal problems or eye pain. In 1919, Kafka wrote the famous letter to the father at the age of 36. He wrote a letter over 30 pages long to his father, Herman. The letter is, quite frankly, an indictment. Kafka and his father had a strained and at times broken relationship over the course of Kafka's life. The father, Herman, was a businessman, a bully, and a military veteran. He simply could not understand his son, who, instead of taking an active role in the family business, preferred to spend his evenings filling up notebooks with stories which he hardly ever showed to anyone and which earned him no money. Franz's letter to his father contains a number of accusations, dating back to Franz's childhood when his father left him out alone on the balcony one night to punish him for misbehaving. Among these accusations concerns Herman's relationship to Judaism. Franz accuses his father of only observing the religion superficially, of not teaching him the principles of Judaism, of being totally disconnected from his heritage. Here, we may let Kafka speak for himself. When I was a child, you accused me of not going to synagogue enough, of not fasting on Yom Kippur, and so on. But you always made me feel as though I were sinning against you and not against myself. Later, as a young man, I couldn't understand how you accused me of having no connection to Judaism when you yourself clearly had no connection. For you, Judaism was little more than a joke. Four days a year you went to synagogue, acted with utter indifference there to all that was happening, patiently endured the prayers as a mere formality. And if that's how it was at the synagogue, it was even worse at home. The first Seder felt more like a comedy show each year. It was a damning letter, to be sure, which Kafka wrote. Fortunately, however, in the end, Kafka, under the influence of his mother, decided not to send it. The Haftarah for this week comes from the book of Jeremiah. In this Haftarah, Jeremiah speaks to a gathering of people in the year 608 BCE. It is the final years of the First Temple period. Twenty-two years later, Nebuchadnezzar's army will sweep into Jerusalem and destroy the first temple and send the Jews into exile in Babylon. What we have here, then, is a splintering civilization, and Jeremiah is all too aware of this. He accuses the Jews of practicing Judaism superficially, outwardly, unfeelingly. Jeremiah says, through the voice of God, When I spoke to your fathers as I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I didn't speak to them about how to make animal sacrifices on the altar. No. I said, listen to me, follow my commandments, and all will be well with you. Here, Jeremiah is communicating, first, that style is worthless without substance. If you go to the temple, but you don't know why you're there, if you believe that you just need to check off the box, so to speak, you've missed the entire point. 
This was essentially the accusation Kafka threw at his father, that he went to synagogue or ran a family seder, but didn't know the purpose behind it. Jeremiah is also expressing a second point, which is interrelated with the first. He is pointing out that his community does not know what God said to their ancestors when he carried them out of Egypt. Jeremiah is indicating that his community is disconnected from the roots and sources and beginnings of its heritage. But how might Jeremiah's community learn the secrets of what God said to the fathers as they left Egypt? How could Jeremiah's people ever hope to gain access to this confidential information? How could they ever know what God really said and what he wished for them as he brought them out of slavery? Can we really blame the Jews of Jeremiah's era for not knowing these classified and restricted teachings? The answer is, yes, of course we can. Because this confidential information is actually not confidential at all. It is all right there in the Torah for all people to read at any time. They just need to open the book and see for themselves. All of the strange phenomena I have tried to diagnose in this episode, the golfer slash dentist who told me I was a member of the tribe, Adam Sandler's song about Hanukkah, which tries to make Jewish kids feel better who don't get to celebrate Christmas, Kafka's father, whose children laughed at him behind his back at the Seder, Jeremiah's Jews, who thought the purpose of Judaism was to look cool when they made sacrifices at the temple. All of these phenomena have at least one thing in common. They show how people will grope in the dark for reasons to make sense of their tradition if they do not know the roots and sources of that tradition. Put another way, I would wager that none of these people ever actually sat down and read the Torah, because if they did, they probably wouldn't act this way. They wouldn't say things like, so you're a member of the tribe, eh? Or, I hope I get a harmonica on this lovely, lovely Hanukkah. In fact, our age is even worse than Kafka's or Jeremiah's, the more that I think about it. At least these earlier eras tried to pretend like they knew what they were talking about. Today, it seems as in the case of the golfer or Adam Sandler, we almost take pride in treating Judaism as a joke. We embrace the decay rather than try to camouflage it. One reason for this phenomenon is surely American culture's general flaunting of ignorance and its determination to crack jokes above all else, both stemming from a vicious insecurity in the American psyche. It is this neglect and failure among the Jewish community to actually read the sources which has bastardized our tradition. We define Judaism based on what we heard our neighbor or our coworker or our overnight camp bunkmates say, who themselves are just as unlearned on the sources as we are. We let Judaism be characterized defensively, apologetically, in a submissive reaction against the predominant culture in which it might find itself. So many of these hardly funny phrases or utterances about Judaism are often just unconscious apologies, covert displays of weakness that Judaism should dare to exist within a hegemonic culture of Christianity or atheism. These phrases paraded around by Jews, like Jew-niversity, or Jew-York, or Chinese food on Christmas, or even just bagels and locks, all originate from, I think, the same ground. They all originate from this grasping in the dark for identity within a self-perpetuating culture which continually reminds Jews that they are a minority. Yet, this bastardization of heritage could be mitigated or even cured entirely 
if Jews just opened up the Torah and read, preferably in Hebrew. We need to go back to the sources, in fact, in all aspects of our lives. Back to the sources was the rallying cry of the 16th century humanists, famous thinkers such as Erasmus of Rotterdam, Thomas More, Petrarch, and Boccaccio. In medieval Christianity, the actual Bible was rarely read. Instead, people read commentaries on the Bible. The humanists realized that to really understand the Bible, one had to read the words directly. This premise further inspired them to read all books of the ancient world as original sources, the epics of Homer, the philosophy of Aristotle, the plays of Aristophanes. This opening up of the original sources electrified the European intellect and paved the pathway to the Italian Renaissance, which celebrated ancient culture and sought to incorporate it back into now modern life. The excitement was only possible due to the revelations and epiphanies which came from reading the original sources and seeing for oneself how many undiscovered gems lay inside. Our culture today has fallen into the same pattern as that of medieval theologians. We shy away from original sources, preferring instead to have a mediator, usually a professor or a biographer or an expert, tell us what happened. Instead of traveling to a country or asking someone there what it's like on the ground, we allow a newspaper or reporter to mediate the situation to us. Instead of reading the letters or diaries of a historical figure ourselves, we permit a professor to tie the whole story up for us in a bow, for which we happily pay $25. We then call this pleasant object, with its smooth cover and soft pages, a biography or a history book. The problem with this approach is that, first, we deny ourselves the ability to come to our own conclusions on news, history, nutrition, science, pretty much anything, in fact. And second, when we allow information to be mediated to us, we receive a distorted picture. I assure you, whatever you think Mount Sinai looked like, you will be surprised if you actually travel to Egypt and hang around by the mountain. In conclusion, Go back to the sources so that all of your preconceptions and stereotypes and mind's eye pictures can finally be shattered and the truth can begin to emerge from the wreckage. his greed, who for his heart.
Shall I say is calling? 